Hi, I'm Michelle Adams, and welcome back to the Beyond Words podcast. This is the place where we sit down with the writers of your favourite books and talk to them about the inspiration behind the stories that they write. In each episode of this podcast, you'll get the chance to meet the author behind one of my favourite books and be introduced to a novel that I have personally loved and which I think and hope you'll love too. Beyond Words is where the story continues once the final page has been turned. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of the Beyond Words podcast. Today's author is here to talk about her latest book, which in this case is a non-fiction book. It's our first non-fiction book on the podcast and a book that I read um, earlier on this year. I think it has been published at a very opportune moment because we are all this year going through um, what is a difficult period in time for all of us collectively. And this book is about learning, in the words of the author, how to flourish when life becomes frozen. The book that we're here to talk about today is called Wintering, and it's written by a wonderful author called Catherine May. And the book takes into account a six-month period in Catherine's life when, through a sudden illness in her family, sort of delivered her into this very uncertain and difficult time. And this is an account of how she dealt with that and how she took inspiration from the natural world, how the seasons changing helped her deal with it um, and come to an understanding of what that process is about. And I'd just like to read before uh, we jump into the conversation with Catherine a little bit from the back cover of the UK edition. And it says, wintering brings about some of the most profound and insightful moments of our human experience, and wisdom resides in those who have wintered. Certainly, my experience of this conversation with Catherine left me feeling as if I had learnt something um, about how to deal with difficulties in life. And um, the book is exactly that. Um, It feels like a real comforting lesson in um, difficult periods and um, how we get through them. I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Catherine today. It's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast because I absolutely loved meeting you when we were at our party, absolutely loved wintering. And to just have the chance to sit here and have a chat (laughs) with you about it. um, It almost feels like, you know, you just sort of, snuggling up on the sofa with a cup of hot chocolate or something that's what having a conversation with you feels like that when we're going to talk about wintering I am sat here with a hot water bottle and a, and a, Yay! And a, and a <laughs> over my knees um in my version of cold because it's not cold here either. yeah I was gonna say you don't need that do you? <laughs> I, I tried my best to make it uh, winter but um you know yesterday I went out in my coats and my boots and my scarf and everyone else was wearing shorts but, you know I'm pushing the pushing the case for the cold weather but it's I, not really you know what? If I don't get the chance to put a jumper on, like quite early in the year, I get very antsy about the oh, whole thing. <laughs> By the end of my holiday, no matter when that holiday falls, be it June, July, or August, <laughs> I am ready from the day I get home for it to get cold. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's still really warm here today. Actually, oh, it's not really? warm, but it's it's not cold. Cold. Certainly, wouldn't bother putting gloves on. It's really. Oh, yeah. That is a disappointment. 
it is really disappointing. <laughs> it's really, really, really disappointing. Yeah. Well, let's talk about wintering. Uh, we're, we're skirting around the idea of cold and, and what have you, but let's talk about what wintering is. And if you, before we talk about the book as such, tell me mm. in, in your words what wintering is as a concept. So wintering is the idea that we all have phases in life when we kind of drop through the cracks, really. Um, it might be after an illness, physical or mental, or during that illness. Um, it might be after a major life event like a bereavement, divorce, losing a job. Um, there's loads of different ways it can come, but it brings about a similar state of mind. So that state of mind is feeling like the world's ended really, like extreme suffering and isolation and grief and shame and that really toxic cocktail that I think all of us will recognise, but we don't talk about it because we feel like we're the only person that's ever done it. Mm. Um, and it becomes this dirty secret that everybody keeps. But actually, to me, I think it's part of the normal cycle of life. Yeah. And we need to learn to, A, kind of externalise it and see our commonality. Like, it might have come for a different reason, but we've got so much in common with other people who are wintering. Yeah. And we can always help, you know, we can always help each other out. And I think it's really time. And this year, above all others, really, really means that we have to acknowledge it. It's impossible yeah. not to. Um, certainly, like you say, referring there to the fact that 2020 has been so hard for everyone and the concept mm. of commonality this year, without any doubt, we've all experienced our own version of the same thing. Um, yeah. And I think perhaps people this year are even more receptive to the idea of wintering because we've all been forced into experiencing it. Yeah, I mean, like it's a it's kind of a mass wintering in a way. But at the same time, it's we're all suffering separately yes. because we're all going through different stuff. And actually, I think I, I keep sort of seeing people online slightly snapping at each other because their suffering's greater or you've looked cheerful at an inopportune moment or something <laughs> like that. And I think we have to be really wary of that because we all need to take our joy when we can. Yeah. Because actually, like, it's it's going to... The pain's going to come soon enough. You know, we're all having these huge dips, aren't we, for loads of different reasons. Yes. And that doesn't have to be for something dramatic. I mean, we've, I think we've got off really lightly this time. You know, we haven't lost a, a loved one. Um, neither of us have been very ill. But I was saying to my husband the other day, well, actually, like, the fear has come out of this for us because we've lost loads of people already, <laughs> you know. Yeah. That, that means that you know we've had other periods of our life when when this has been really real for us and maybe it's a bit easier because there's no one around to lose you know yeah. it's not this there's no kind of competition here and i think if you're suffering a dip just because life feels unbearably boring and stale and you just feel depressed for today then that is just as valid as anything else like we've all just got to look after each other yeah well, you, you sort of mentioned there about what it means to you this year mm. and perhaps it hasn't been as hard for you this year because you've been through other periods of difficulty yeah. when you've lost somebody. What what does wintering mean to you on a personal level? What what does it give to you or or in other ways take? Yeah, I mean I think when I talk about wintering, I'm always really careful to say it's always painful, you know, like this isn't a book about 
um, oh, see the bright side. It's great. You know, it's a learning yeah. experience, you know, so flip it over to be really good. Yeah. But I do think that if we can bear to engage with our moments of wintering, we're often going through a big change and we're often learning something about ourselves and we're often seeing a future new life. That's not always a wanted new life. You know, some winterings come because you're starting a long-term illness, for example. But that doesn't mean to say that it isn't helpful to reimagine yourself in that future. It's a period of adjustment. And I think wintering often opens up space to make that change. Like all of life stops. And so that gives us time to reflect if we let ourselves. But the problem is that because we don't ever really get an education in how to winter and how to deal with these parts of life, we tend to try and numb ourselves instead and tend to try and like let it pass what we think is painlessly but all of that numbing ourselves against it you know whether that's drinking or like watching loads of tv you know that that can be a way to numb ourselves or you yeah know, absorbing ourselves in computer games or all of those you know like flicking through the apps on our phone that's my worst one like the whole world we're doing that what we're actually doing is flinching away from pain and that can sometimes be more painful than the actual pain that we're trying to avoid like yes. that flinch is is the terror of it all so yeah i think i think there are positives that come out of it very slowly but i don't think we should necessarily be seeking those i think it's about the act of acceptance of sadness and and knowing that those periods of time necessary work and unavoidable work and part of our humanity. One of the things that I really took from uh, the book is what you were saying there about its periods of sadness and that we have to accept these as part of the rhythm of life. But Mm. one thing I really took from the book is that not only does this happen, but rather than shying away from it and sort of covering your ears and closing your eyes until it's over, in wintering, the choice is to lean into it and see how you can move with that period and what you can get Mm. out of it. And the book takes us through a period of your life from October to March. Mm. So how how did you learn to lean into your wintering periods? Um, yeah, no, and I, I did actually very slowly. I mean, I, um, I say at the beginning of the book, I learned to winter young um, because I'm one of the many women of my age that got an autism diagnosis quite late in life. Right. Um, and that meant that I had periods of really poor mental health as a child and as a teenager and as a young adult. Right. And that for me meant, you know, quite a lot of seasons of really dropping out. You know, I had a year out of school when I was 14 because I just got so ill like very common autistic thing burnout you know which leads to absolute physical exhaustion right um couldn't go to school um had nearly a year out with a nervous breakdown when I was 17 right Uh, and then all through my adult life I've left every single job you know because I've got overwhelmed by it so I'm really familiar with those periods probably more than most people yeah and over the time i kind of gained an appreciation for them almost they were always giving me what I needed which was to stop like they were always a sign that I'd push myself way past the signal that this was far too much for me yeah and they always were terrifying but they always led me to like imagining the next self and eventually that led me to my autism diagnosis which I wrote about an electricity of every living thing and since then 
I've had to make adaptations. Like I've had to acknowledge that I can't carry on behaving like a neurotypical woman and pretending that I can cope with the stuff that everybody else copes with. Yeah. And that has been transformative for me, like finally giving in to my needs as if that's a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's really hard to, to actually say, there's actually a few things that I can't cope with. You know, I can't cope with going to parties. Um, I can't cope with work days that are absolutely packed with interaction with other people. Yeah. Um, I can't cope with work days that are full of emergencies and that never settle down, that I can never plan and get on top of things. All of those things don't just make me feel uncomfortable, they make me sick. And leaning into that, as you say, like actually engaging with what I need and working with my mind style in a really positive way has just made me so much happier. I can't, I can't even express it. I don't think I will ever have to go through a major period of burnout again because I've learned to adapt. And that's taken me half a lifetime to learn, <laughs> which is awful. Do you think that the diagnosis of autism gave you almost a sense of freedom from those periods of overwhelm and mm. burnout that you were describing before? Was it sort of a key that unlocked an understanding that... Um, yeah, yeah. An acceptance. I mean, yeah. I think, I mean, actually the diagnosis itself was completely useless. I have to, I have to be completely honest. I mean, I had to explain to them based on my deeper knowledge of the current research on, on adult women with, you know, women's symptoms, if you like, like, and what the experience of being autistic is. That's incredible. So, oh my God, you... we asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's really common. I mean, I think um, we've got a very, very, very long way to go. Um in, in all, all areas of looking after autistic people, in fact. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the good thing is that we autists are great researchers. Like, that's what we <laughs> like to do. You know, we like to really dig deep into a topic. Yeah. Um, and so it's a very powerful community of really knowledgeable people who are dealing with their own stuff because the medical community actually hasn't. And actually demedicalizing it too. Like, yeah. talking about it as how to be a... A, a regular human being that doesn't require intervention but that just needs some knowledge about how to get on with with life yeah um, in their own way yeah to so my, from burnout. absolutely to protect themselves from burnout and from from distress you know from everyday distress and I think so yeah so the diagnosis itself didn't do anything but my research and my support from the rest of the autistic community has just taught me so much about how to adapt my life on an everyday basis and I'm getting better at it I mean I'm still a little bit rubbish at asserting my own needs it's still hard it still impacts my pride sometimes to say yeah. I'm not gonna be able to do this sorry um but I know the costs and you know like there's that, that kind of it took me a long time to think about myself as disabled too that was a really hard word for me to adopt like right. I did <laughs> you didn't I, want to hear that word I didn't, I, yeah, it didn't, I couldn't relate to it, but I am disabled. It's just not absolute, you know, it's not like that means that I can't do anything. It means that I need accommodation in some situations. Yeah. And the problem for me is that I can survive without those accommodations because I have done for a long time, but there will be a cost and I've got to stop thinking that that cost is just normal life. It's not. 
like neurotypical people live without that cost and I deserve to not have that cost too uh but that's that's hard right that's really that I'm finding that difficult still I, you know. I suppose in some ways it's almost about accepting what kind of life do you want I can live like this but yes I yeah. want to live like that yeah. um and yeah. be sort of protective of myself and and how I feel and the difficulties that I may or may not face based on choices definitely and I you have to let go of the idea that you can win at everything to do that. You know, yes. I always wanted to be the best. I was always really good at school. You know, I was like, I was academically really capable and I was in my comfort zone a lot there. And I think like loads of bright kids, you leave school and the world isn't like that. Like nobody ever gives you a tick again, do they? Yeah. It's awful. <laughs> no <report card. laughs> Yeah, I still want those nice percentages at the end of my year that I used to line up and look at loads and think, wow, I'm, yeah, I I nailed that. Except for PE, I don't want Michelle's yeah, right no. I don't. I don't think they used to even say that about me at PE. I, I, Catherine skived the whole year as much as she could possibly. Catherine seemed to have a lot of periods this year. But yeah, I, you know, I still want to be that girl that gets everything right, and nobody's that girl. I mean, right, some people are, but we can just safely ignore them because they're just exhausting. Um, it's it's hard it's a big adaptation to make and I, yeah. I think like you know we I I spend a lot of time advocating for autistic people and you know and for the disabled community in general because I think it's I think we're interrelated um but I don't think we should ever disguise the fact that we're all fighting our individual battles and mindsets yeah. within that and it you know that mindset shift does not happen in one day yeah it takes a long time you know and it's it's really really hard and I, I I like to see myself as a helper rather than somebody in need of help and I'm both of course I am because we all yeah. are and that's um yeah. that's a big challenge for me definitely well, one of the things that I I really liked about this book is that it made me consider some of the things about my own life and um I know that when I came to Cyprus like it's a completely different environment than living in the UK and in the UK the natural cycle of the weather with it being cold and it being raining you know there's a lot more life inside and sort of nestled away in your home and in Cyprus it's not really like that you know people are out a lot the, that Mediterranean lifestyle where it's very sociable and you know that was different for me and I found that I was missing those sort of like quiet times at home just being on my own with the rain against the windows that kind of thing um, and so I wondered if you sort of having written this book had any advice for somebody who was finding themselves in a sort of lifestyle that <laughs> whether overwhelming is the wrong word but sort of like not exactly what they want if they were craving the quietness or the sort of mm. the moments on their own how can they go about creating that for themselves well I mean that's definitely a process that I've been through I mean I really I mean, this is the extent of my delusion before my diagnosis. I thought I was a mega sociable person. Right. And it, it, I'm actually not. I was actually really being drained by my social life. And I would say it's a really, you have to give it time to adapt. 
and and you have to learn to assert your need for solitude and it is mm. a need you know yeah solitude doesn't come by accident particularly if you've got you know close family living nearby or with you like if you live in a really busy community I mean Whitstable where I live is a little bit like that you can't walk down the street without seeing someone you know yeah yeah and there are some days when I just don't even want to say hi (laughs) (laughs) on those days I walk the dog in the woods down the road instead um but I it is like a um it's a need and and I think the first stage is acknowledging it as a need and not as a coincidence that might happen sometimes yeah and then setting aside space I mean I you know I regularly leave empty weekends deliberately and and turn down lovely lovely invitations because I need that that fire break yeah and I think the biggest insight I've learned is that people don't know what's in your calendar so you can say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm busy that day. And they don't know you've got a completely empty diary. Yeah. It's yeah. fine. You're totally allowed to do that. That's my yeah. that's my big life tip, I think. That's my <laughs> hack. <laughs> I think it's so important. Like uh, this year, obviously, we've all experienced that. Suddenly, none of us have got anything to do because we're locked down and mm. we have to stay at home. Not anything, but, you know, from a social perspective. Yeah, no, it's so true. And like yesterday, we put the Christmas tree up. I know we're a bit early, but you know, we're looking for <laughs> no, anything, that anything yeah. that's fun in 2020. So we put the Christmas tree up and, you know, all five of us were here in the house chatting. We all sat and had breakfast together, which is almost a non-existent mm. Sunday. Um, and it was just really nice. You know, we sat, yeah. we put the Christmas tree up, we had some music on, then we had lunch in the garden. And it was just like, what a lovely mm. slow pace that we can enjoy I think that's lovely and I I actually think for lots of kids it's been a bit of a gift this year not being driven around to music lessons and sports clubs and yeah I think sometimes we force our kids through a lot of social life when they actually just need some time like adults do yeah yeah I mean we're we're early with the Christmas decks as well this year I think like everyone's (laughs) looking for a way out and I but I actually I found the very beginning of lockdown overly sociable everyone was trying to zoom each other and have weird yeah. social time and I thought that was dreadful I hated that it was worse than normal yeah. <laughs> you're in my living room <laughs> yeah like I, no no I don't want to have drinks over zoom thanks we wouldn't normally be having drinks can we not you know? <laughs> and I, it's been really interesting seeing that gradually drop off because I think in some ways we are learning to appreciate our solitude and we're, but we're also looking for better quality social interactions, you know, like meaningful ones and ones that are actually enjoyable. Yeah. And I think that's OK. I, I have to tell you, actually, one of my friends um, who I Zoom with sometimes, um, she's she has got this. I th- what I think is a really great skill, whereas you sh- like 45 minutes into your conversation, you go, right, I've had enough now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because I do think yeah. of these things like we know no people have got nowhere else to go it's so easy yeah. to go on and on and on yeah. out of a sense of obligation and she's just like right I've had enough see you later <laughs> <laughs> I think that's really to be applauded <laughs> I think it's true I think it's true a friend of mine used to say to me some uh, when I used to live in the UK something about going out to work thing and I and I said to her once oh I would go but I don't want to <laughs> she just said I wish I could just answer that way that I, I would but I don't want to <laughs> yeah no, I don't want to yeah. do that. Like, yeah. that's, that's actually, that's a catchphrase I've really learned the last yeah. couple of years. Is to I say, don't want to. Don't want to do that. You can yeah. do that. No, thanks. <laughs> it's really useful. It's really, it's crucial. It's crucial skill. It really is. 
<laughs> Wintering for me was also quite a spiritual book. Um, for me, there was a lot of discussion about sort of experiences of religion, old religions mm. that have passed that we don't use them anymore, um, and also your experience of going to the Swedish church. Yes. Can, can you talk to, talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I went to the Santa Maria um, service which is normally around about the 21st of December um, at the Swedish church in London, in Marlebone, um, which is of course the famous service where the, the girls walk along the aisle with the candles, lit candles in their hair um, and singing beautiful songs. Um, and I, you see, I'm, I was brought up an atheist, but I'm a kind of church loving atheist. I love the ritual. I love the couple of hours of peace that you can get in a church and I yeah. do crave it. I don't have the belief to go um, so I do like any excuse I get and that was just a really beautiful beautiful time because the church is full of children and they were all so excited to see Maria and um, so the the priest you know says a little bit of preamble and then they drop the lights and the children all start whispering is she coming you know and and then this you know the light comes in and singing and it's so so beautiful and it, it's, it was one of the many things in the book that made me really reflect on my own need for ritual, which my life has been lived largely without, actually. Right. Um, and I think since writing the book, I've deliberately brought more ritual into my life or, or more moments of just pause in the year to notice the changing of the seasons. And it's it it's such a huge benefit to me to, you know, sometimes light a fire maybe, or just to light a candle, just to notice a, a shift coming through. Yeah. Um, it's a, I've, again, another thing I've come to late in life, but I get so much out of it. It's interesting you use the word ritual because I have a list of things that I wanted to ask and right next <laughs> to spiritual, I've also written that maybe ritual is the right word rather than spiritual. Yeah. So it's really interesting that you use that and I use it in my own life sort of, um, I say that I want the ritual of space and it doesn't mm. matter whether that's sort of like physical space to be on my own or physical space to have space in a program or actually space at home like I don't like having too much clutter and I right, do think yeah. those sorts of having a ritual about what is important to you can mm. be so beneficial. Yeah it's about meaning making isn't it and yeah. I think um you know, those of us, I think there's loads of people like me who grew up without any religious background at all now. Um, we used to be unusual, but I don't think we are anymore. I don't think so. Uh, no, and I, I think we're kind of bringing it back in, in a lot of ways. There's something missing when there's no ritual in your life. Um, and also when there's no spiritual sense of the world, actually. I really, yeah. I mean, I started meditating like over 10 years ago now, and that has given me an increasingly spiritual sense of the world, definitely. And I never meant it to like I, you know, when I was trying to learn, I was doing this very careful checking, like, you know, there'll, there'll be no spirituality in this, will there? <laughs> It'll just be a, <laughs> just wanted a toolkit and it brings it to you somehow anyway. Um, I, I find that really necessary now. I find it very disappointing that I lived so long without any sense of grandeur, I guess, of the bigger world, of yeah. the you know just the changing of the seasons and things like that and the the way that the that nature is so much bigger than we are um that's enough for me in lots of ways but to connect with that to make space as you say to connect with that deliberately yeah. and intentionally is what ritual does um 
and I, I think we live in a, you know, with huge privilege that we get to choose our rituals rather than have them imposed on us. Um, I think most rituals intended to do that originally, but they go stale over time and they lose yeah. their meaning, they lose their sense of immediacy. I get to make my own rituals that have immediacy for me, and that's that's a huge privilege, I think. It's interesting that you discuss nature there as well, because obviously wintering was sort of nominated and long-listed. Was it long-listed or short-listed? Long-listed. Long-listed for, yeah. for the Wainwright Nature Prize. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's true, like for me, like that sense of spirituality, I do get in nature. And it's so beautiful mm. to, to read how you write about nature, how you see the world. Um, is nature something that plays a really big role in your life? Do you like to be out in nature and... Mm, it's really important for me to get outdoors it uh, again all of these things came to me quite late I had a very indoor childhood I think yeah um and the process of learning was really in my last book Electricity of Every Living Thing when I walked the southwest coast path and I think I'd always quite enjoyed going into the wilderness specifically yeah. I'm not very keen on tame nature I really like it to feel wild yeah um and that was the point in my life when I learned to really crave and need it, you know, rather than just to see it as a nice to have, yeah. to really understand my absolute need for that time and space. And, you know, it's the, it's the natural soundscape and the smells and like the whole sensory environment that I find very, very comforting. So yeah, it is important to me. I do always feel a little bit uncomfortable amid other nature writers though I think I'm a little bit different for them <laughs> only because like they're often really expert about it whereas I'm I'm like the the eternal amateur and quite happy to be so like I sometimes get described as a naturalist and I always ask for a correction when that happens because I really think that's an accurate description of me <laughs> I know nothing and I yeah I don't ever feel like a nature writer really I feel like a writer who likes nature sometimes but I, you know who also likes folklore and you know yeah. all sorts of other things um I'm just a bad nature writer if I'm a nature writer so that's why <laughs> that's why I get uncomfortable with it when I got the Wainwright listing I was like oh god that's oh, no. not right <laughs> oh well, man that's not how I took it I thought I thought it was beautiful <laughs> I, think, I think that might just be me <laughs> especially like your your connection to the sea um, mm. Like in living here, I've I've uh, developed a new respect for people who live by the sea, and I understand what they say when they want to see the sea and be near the sea and listen to the sea. Um, but the sea that I go in is very different from the sea that you go in. You, you know, you, my <laughs> I don't go in it unless it's July or August. But you're in the sea in England all the way through the year. So yeah, absolutely, talk yeah. to me about that. What what is it that drives you to get into a very very cold? <laughs> well I have always been very very drawn to the sea like even when I was a child we used to go to the beach in the summer and um I was always having to be kind of dragged away from just wandering in fully clothed to the sea <laughs> I it's got a huge attraction to me and I, I do just love everything about you know the sound of the sea the texture of the water and swimming for me is like a way of resetting I right. find it immensely relaxing I love the way that every time you enter the sea you're in a different environment it's never the same you never yeah. do the same swim twice and yeah I've got into my cold water swimming since writing wintering um and that for me is about this 
intense immersion in a moment I think like it is cold it's not that I don't like people think I don't feel the cold I feel the cold (laughs) it's cold in there and it's still quite hard to get in but once you are in you enter a different mind space and there's all sorts of chemical changes that go on in your bloodstream you know like um there's a big serotonin release um there's also actually a whole range of happy hormones get released when you when you wild swim and and the colder it gets the the more heightened that becomes really yeah there's some really good evidence of it yeah and some really good evidence that it sort of seems to improve mood that it uh, reduces dementia uh, or, or your chance of getting dementia um that it um that it kind of helps you to cope basically and I think that some of that is just time in a different, completely different mind space. I I think that's just a wonderful part of it. But it's also this sense of resilience that you get from it. Like you've done this really hard, brave thing. Yeah. And when you come out, you feel slightly pleased with yourself about it. (laughs) I think that's why cold water swimmers are always talking about it, because we're really delighted that we managed it. (laughs) You're feeling very brave and accomplished. Yeah, Yeah, it does. It teaches you that you can do a brave thing. And that means you can do other brave things too, I think. Um, but no, I do. I, I just love it. And I feel very sad if I don't get to do it for a while. Um, I, it's, I was dying to get in today, actually, but I didn't. I hope I haven't kept you from that. No, the tide was a little bit too low. Out In Whitstable, we have a very short window of time when you can actually swim right. uh, around high tide. If you do it just outside that it looks like there's sea there but there's you're just wading shin deep for about an hour oh, <laughs> miserable. and you oh you swim and your belly's scraping the ground you know <laughs> so that's suboptimal as far as I'm concerned so yeah, yeah. you have to you have to get those you have those to time it just right. right I suppose it's a bit like um it's a bit like how I used to like going out into the Peak District when it was really cold nice winter walk lots mm. of wind and then you would like at the end of it you get into the pub and you can feel the tingle oh. in your cheeks. It's kind of the same thing. It's, yeah, absolutely. That tingle in your cheeks is a, yeah. a real thing of a cold walk. I, you see, I actually love walking in winter more than summer as well. I think I'm quite yeah. unusual for that too. Me, too. Me too. I love getting out in that cold landscape. It's so beautiful. Everything does feel almost like suspended in time. Like there's there's less movement in the air. I, yeah. And you feel like you're walking through a, a kind of frozen scene. I just love winter walking. I don't like getting hailed on, mind you. Like when I was when I did the Southwest Coast Path, I did it through winter, and oh, there were days when I wasn't in love with the winter weather. Then, <laughs> like six hours of cold rain. Oh yeah, I mean there comes a point. <laughs> there comes a point when you think, okay. And there was one day when um, my phone got smashed by hail hailstones, and then the by hailstones, and then the subsequent rain killed it. <laughs> It was big. It was really heavy. I got my oh phone my out God. to take a photo of it and it went smash. Oh, oh my God. My and then, of course, water got into the phones. So that killed my my phone. So, I mean, yeah, that was um, that was a special day. Yeah. They're, they're not the days we're talking about. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But even after days like that, you know, you get in and you think, wow, I did that. I, you know, I walked 10 miles uphill in hail yeah <laughs> that's something that's really something that's something to take from it <laughs> in 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 your books obviously they're not fiction they're no they're they're about your life they're about the things that you've experienced and how does that how do you approach that in as a writer differently mm. than what say I would approach writing a story 
um, about fiction. How, how do you begin to carve that story out of all of the experiences that you have? Um, I think, cause that, you know, I've, I've written fiction as well. And I think the big difference is that writing memoir is much more hit or miss. Um, you kind of, I mean, I do, I don't know how everyone else does it, but I tend to throw a lot of different experiences at it and have a high wastage rate, essentially, because some things really come alive on the page and right. feel really meaty and meaningful and emotionally hefty. Yeah. And other things, you write them down and you're just like, I don't know, it doesn't move me. Yeah. So, so yeah I think for me it's about being willing to cut loads and loads and loads of work right um, and also it's about being conscious of having a narrative arc within trying to tell the truth about your life yeah. um, and so that means being quite selective about the stuff you put in I think um, and being quite conscious about the things you take out I mean actually wintering had a whole central chapter about Christmas but I just cut because it just didn't ever come to life. Yeah. And it, it never did the work that I needed it to. And so, you know, I was just really brutal with it quite late in the editorial process and took it, took it way out. Um, that's hard. I mean, I, I know when I'm writing fiction, there's a story that has to be told. And so you like, there's bits that have to be in there because you're, you've imagined it that way and, and you can, yeah reimagine it but you can like you work till it fits whereas I think memoir it's much more trying it out putting it in taking it out again you know yeah. <laughs> and within all of that you've got a responsibility to the people other people in the story you've got a responsibility to the objective truth um so there are some things that maybe in fiction you'd manipulate the story to make it fit, but you can't really do you that. Do so that. it has to, it's either in or out, essentially. Yeah. There's little bits you can modify, but not too much. Definitely. And you have a course for narrative nonfiction um, that you do. run online. How, yeah. how, how did that come about? Because I know your old job was as an educator in a, in a university. So is that yes. harking back to that desire to pass on education <laughs> or was it something yeah. else that drove you to I've actually always worked in education. I started as a secondary teacher and then I spent quite a few years working in arts education um, and gallery education and then moved into like running a creative writing course at university. So yeah, right. I've, I, I miss not teaching, definitely. Right. Oh, I miss teaching, sorry, I don't miss not teaching. I miss teaching. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've, you know, I've never really loved formal education as a structure. I don't think right. it is always the most effective way to do it. And so I've thought for a long time about how I can manage to like deliver some teaching, but in my way. Yeah. Um, and again, like this is a space that lockdown opened up because I suddenly yeah. thought I can do this online. I don't have to run courses that people come to. Like that's what had always gone on in my head. Like I felt yes. like I had to do it face to face and I couldn't make that work in my life. Yes. Um, and I suddenly thought, you know what? I can run an online course here. Yeah. And it's been, it's just been wonderful. I really do feel like I'm doing it my way. That's um, lovely. Yeah, so we do. Um, I've got two courses. One is about wintering for writers, so specifically for all those hideous moments that writers go through in their career, right? Um, to help you to work your way through it. Um, but I also run the bigger narrative nonfiction course, and that has just finished its first cycle, and I'm just about to relaunch for the second time. Um, and I've modified it a bit more. Like I feel 
like I've got permission to do it more my way rather than less my way. Yes, I can yeah. see the bits that I tried to do the first time that I thought I ought to. And now I can see, no, actually what my students love is when I'm just being Catherine and talking yes. as Catherine. Yes. Um, and that's something I never felt like I could do within a university. Um, and certainly not within school. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's just been an absolute pleasure. And the feedback's been lovely. And I, I'm so, so nice. glad to have that as part of my, yeah, part of my day, really. It's great. So you're about to start taking on new submissions for the next course? Yes. Yeah, very, very soon. I mean, really within the next few weeks from, from this recording. Um, I am a little bit slow at the moment because I'm doing so much publicity for the new book. So everything's yeah, being a bit disrupted. Yeah. I would love to give you a date, but I fear I would miss it. But um, hopefully before Christmas, we'll be back online. So, okay. um, yeah. And what if, if a writer sort of listening to this and thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. I have a, a memoir I want to write or mm -hmm. something that I'm thinking that I might be able to put down into, into written form. What will they get from your course? What will that help them achieve? It's interesting, my course. It's quite different to other courses. So it's certainly not a beginning to write course. So I always like students that, that want the kind of, um, you know, show don't tell part of the whole writing um, yes. learning need to do a bit of work before they come to me. My course is really about conceptualising your piece of nonfiction. So we don't spend loads of time on the minutiae of your prose. Um, we actually spend time thinking about how to shape a nonfiction text. You know, the stuff I was just saying about creating a narrative arc. Yeah. Um, thinking about how you deal with people without getting sued or offending people that you love. Yeah. Um, thinking about how to develop a kind of metaphorical landscape for your, your work that that chimes with your story. So we do quite big picture thinking about the book. It's really about planning it and um, making it into a story. Because I think the biggest challenge for loads of people is to go from writing articles or short stories into that full whole book narrative. I think yes. that's the really painful thing. And I also think that people get stuck because they worry about how to tell the truth within that environment. Um, so, yeah, so we look at all the stuff that's very specific to writing narrative nonfiction. Um, and we also do monthly Zoom calls where we um, where students can give me any problem and I'll talk them through it. And that's my favourite part of it. Um, and then I run a separate group for people who are a little bit further along the process, who are really ready to be um, finishing off then then manuscripts, pitching, all of that kind of thing. Um, and we run a kind of small mentoring group for that where we work with people that are really on the edge of launching their career or maybe have already got a contract and are finishing that book. Um, and I, I mean, I just love doing both of them. I love solving other people's problems. They're so much easier to solve than mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost so much easier to be objective about somebody else's oh, work. Yes. Yeah, and actually, that, I think that's why we all need that in a funny kind of way. It's not... Um, it's not necessarily about having someone that's more expert than you. Sometimes it's about having a peer who can help you to think through your problems yes. just by stepping outside. Yeah. I think we all need that. I don't think writers are very good in the UK at seeking support. And I, I, I'd like to change that, actually. I think it's really useful um, because mm. being a writer is so sort of, 
it's an isolating job. You you work alone. There isn't really until you get an agent. There isn't really anybody that looks at your work and says whether it's any yeah. good or it isn't. I yeah. self publishing for that. I, I used to self publish right. and read my reviews and work out. Oof, that's a up. that's a brutal way of finding <laughs> out. <was> brutal. <laughs> I used to read the reviews to find the common threads and see where I was going wrong, and it was wow. really really useful. But you do need that sort of that mentoring scheme of somebody mm. just being able to say, oh, I really like. That I don't like this bit. That doesn't really work for me here. And and yeah. as long as you're sort of receptive to that that critique, then it can be so useful. Yeah. And I I feel like, yeah, as you say, we're all very isolated. And it, you know, we tend to see ourselves as in slight competition with other writers. And we're actually not. We're just all swimming no. in the same sea. Yeah. And I, you know, I love it when I can talk to other writers about my manuscript or just about ideas. And yeah. It's, you can get into a track of thought, can't you? Because we're on our own so much, you can get really fixed into a certain way of seeing things that you can't break out of. And you know yes. it's not going well, but yes. you don't know how to leave that the yes. rails. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I and just talking to other people, I think, is, is massively valuable. But also, okay. like, I've got a big thing. I always want to throw the rope down for the people after me. I, I come from a working class background where nobody wrote books. You know, it was not seen as in any way normal to do it. Still isn't in my family. And I know there's loads of people like me and I just, I want to, you know, give as much as I can to explain just the, the mechanics of how you get into this thing. Cause it's, it's weird and there's some tricks. And that's really nice idea actually for you as an educator running your own course mm. and knowing that that's the kind of attitude that you're approaching it with, that really you just want to give people that chance to, to come yeah. up and 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 experience yeah. that that's really nice and when I start I mean actually the one of the things that delayed me setting up my online writing school was I never wanted to paywall basic information I really can't bear seeing that happen yeah and so I always like if people ask me for mentoring on how to get an agent I always say no I'll tell you that out loud because nobody should be keeping that secret like that yes. should never be insider knowledge yes. um the same with writing a book proposal. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've run sort of free courses on doing that because that should not be secret. Yeah. Um, what I'm happy to take behind a paywall is like my own way of seeing it, like the Catherine method rather, yes. than, the, yes. rather yeah. than the basics. And yeah. I think that's so vital because I, one of the things I know for sure is that people from working class backgrounds or maybe ethnic minority backgrounds or um, certainly from like my autistic community don't grow up around the people that can give them the basic advice they need to break into this industry. Yeah. It's just not common currency. Whereas actually amongst like more middle-class families or media savvy families or whatever, that information is in free flow. And I, yeah. you know, I want to make sure that that information is in free flow amongst people from my background too, because there's just some fantastic writers out there, but there's just no one to give them basic advice. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, well, what are you doing next? What's your next book going to be about? So the next book is about humility. Um, and that's a big topic to tackle, but particularly at the moment. I mean, we've been through this vast humbling this year. And at the same time, we've been grappling with a political movement that is about not being humble you know like the whole Trump thing has been I think I mean we've all been stuck to it like glue haven't we yeah and and you know very grateful that that's not happening in my own country 
but it's a and but even you know our political class in the UK has been taken over by politicians who are shameless in their belief that they are absolutely entitled to be exactly at the top of society and I really wanted to write about humility as a value that we need to radically readopt as not just good for society as a whole but actually good for us as individuals um so I yeah I'm in the middle of that and it's just been very hard to write it this year and to process the huge amount that's been going on I mean I write to process ideas that's I write to work out what I think about things I think um and I I know what I think about you know (laughs) the mainstream politics but I don't know yet how we think about this time that we're living through this this massive global pandemic and how we adjust after that that's a huge challenge for all of us because I think there's only going to be more of this coming right and we need to think about how we live our lives in the future and we also need to live with increasing environmental catastrophe coming our way and with huge division you know this these 50 50 splits that just seem to happen everywhere in every election that are so intensely fought and so divisive and we don't know how to move forward and I think I yeah I'm writing about that and it's 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 challenging I'm really challenged by it but I love being in that space where I'm really challenged um yeah (laughs) when when do you think that when do you think that it will be it'll be it'll be out in 2022 so it's quite a while yeah there's a there's a whole year without uh, any book from me you guys I'm afraid um any new book sorry there's like other work is available (laughs) um (laughs) but yeah so I mean I you know wintering will come out in paperback in the US next year I've got launches for it in other countries um so I yeah that's that's my next year really um so I've got the I've got a long time until that book comes out and that's the huge challenge right because by the time the book comes out life is going to have moved on yeah and my predictive powers are not that strong I don't think <laughs> you don't know where um, we're going to be exactly exactly so uh yeah I'm battling through it I I kind of love that part of writing don't you when you're deep in the woods I do I do I like that phase I'm I'm at the stage now where I'm sort of crafting out it's not quite a first draft but it's not quite the second draft either mm. um and it is really nice some days I sort of turn up at my desk and I don't really know where I'm going and I'll sort of waste an hour or so looking at anything else shopping on the <laughs> but, internet yeah <laughs> but um but yeah this phase is that it, it's it's the phase that I don't think it's the most important phase because I I always think that the last few edits are the most important in in the process for me but this mm. stage is the is the really enjoyable part especially in fiction because you are literally creating the bones yeah. of what you're yeah. going to be working on later it's, it's the bit where you're doing battle, I think. You're yes. right in the centre of the yeah. fracas. <laughs> yeah. And that's a bit of, for me, that's a moment of like absolutely no clarity whatsoever. <laughs> I but do I feel like that way. It. I like yeah. it. What, the thing that I, I find difficult at this stage is not really knowing the characters well enough. I think mm. after one or two drafts, you don't really know them as people because they're not really people in the book. yet. You haven't got yeah, the details got in there. Enough. And I always mm. find that sort of by draft four or five, 
is when I really start. <gasps> you write that many drafts. Yeah, wow, I, dra- I draft a lot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, this is the first book actually where I have only just reached what I would say is like a normal word count. Normally, I'm like 120,000 words and trying to work yeah. out where I can cut things. Whereas this yeah. one, I sort of got to 75,000 words and thought, "Am I finished? <laughs> like, I don't know what to write wow. now." Yeah, <laughs> where did that come from? It's um, almost like you know what you're doing. Well, I think it's the opposite, actually. It's, it's the fact that I don't know what anyone's doing. <laughs> I just sort of move them around like pawns, and now I'm actually trying to to, to work out who they are and, yeah, and okay. where we go from here. Because I'm because I'm actually not a big drafter. I'm a my like it lands more or less right the first time. Oh, I wish. But I wish. I, but I don't. I'm slow. I'm really really slow. And I don't write all the way through first time. I write to about 25,000 words and then really address that first 25,000 and then write forwards from there. So, yeah, I I haven't got the patience to redraft. I so admire redrafters. I just don't do it. (laughs) I I find it's the only way I can write anything that works because I I can't redraft the beginning until I've got the end. Um, Is each one radically different? Or is each one kind of incrementally? Rarely. The book that okay. I've just finished writing, um, and it isn't finished, finished yet, but it's sort of like it's it would be a third book of women's fiction. That oh. one I have written five times, and I have written wow. it five times. <laughs> wow, so, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, whereas the book before that I wrote, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. I think because I only write about a 1,000 words a day max, maybe for three days a week yeah I I just I've got to learn that first time I because otherwise it would just take me years to write a book and I I'm so I'm so slow and easily distracted (laughs) it's appalling going back to what you said earlier about knowing what it is that you need it's the same as a writer you have to know what your process is yeah and like I know that my process is that I draft and so if mm-hmm. I'm not writing three to 4,000 words a day in the first couple of months of writing the book, then I'm never going to get there. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're out of your comfort zone massively yeah. as well. Yeah. And the same for you. Like, you know that you need to write at a slower pace because that's your, that's the way you craft stuff. It's all packed. You know, like my, when you look at my writing, there's so many different things packed in. So I'm often writing 500 words, doing a bit of research, adding, yeah. you know, it's really. Yeah. yeah. And I, that's why I really hate the culture of saying, this is how you write a book. You know, like whenever I see someone say like, yeah. here's 10 steps, say, that I don't know a single writer that does it the same as the writer next no, to them. We're, absolutely you just, not. You have to make your own process. It's, it's not, it's just in no way a fixed skill is it it's no totally random and perhaps it might yeah. even be different for different books you might oh, write one book I in one way mm. actually I mean I think I write fiction really differently I think I write fiction a bit quicker than non-fiction and yet yeah. my non-fiction books are much shorter I mean you know like my contract for the next book is fifty-five thousand words which seems hilariously short compared to a fiction contract yeah, yeah. um but that's plenty <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> because the research is really is really slow it's been so nice to talk to you about all of this. Thank you for um, having me. It's brilliant. What I'd love to do, if we can, just at the end here, is to just introduce people to the actual book itself and ask you to do a short reading. Yeah, certainly. Um, let me read a little bit from the beginning, because actually I think um, I think it outlines what wintering is. I think we'll, we'll go okay. there, shall we, so people Great. understand. Everybody winters at one time or another. Some winter over and over again. 
wintering is a season in the cold. It's a fallow period in life when you're cut off from the world, feeling rejected, sidelined, blocked from progress, or cast into the role of an outsider. Perhaps it results from an illness or a life event such as a bereavement or the birth of a child. Perhaps it comes from a humiliation or failure. Perhaps you're in a period of transformation and have temporarily fallen between two worlds. Some winterings creep upon us more slowly, accompanying the protracted death of a relationship, the gradual ratcheting up of caring responsibilities as our parents age, the drip, drip, drip of lost confidence. Some are appallingly sudden, like discovering that one day your, your life skills are considered obsolete, the company you worked for has gone bankrupt, or your partner is in love with someone new. However it arrives, wintering is usually involuntary, lonely and deeply painful, yet it's also inevitable. That's cheery that bit, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's great to hear it again. It's been a while since I read it, so just going back to it, I was dipping into it this morning and thinking, God, I love this book. There's so many passages that just resonate so well um, yeah. and just feel so deeply personal to you, but so so true to life that you can recognize yourself in it so it's I'm just glad that's really what I wanted from it that's really I I mean like people keep sending me photos of their copies with all little post-it notes sticking out all yeah. the way through like a hedgehog yeah that just makes me delighted I love that instinct <laughs> well it's it was a beautiful book it's out now I hope that people go out and thoroughly enjoy it thank you thanks so much for being here with us today Catherine thanks very much thank you